Good morning, guys. You know, the further I go in life, the more I look forward to Sunday as something like a pep rally for the, for the week to come. And um, man, joining in with that singing, just what I needed today. I'm glad to hear. Those of you who are guests, thanks for coming. Hope you hang around a few minutes afterwards. Give us a chance to love on you. Those of you who are online, our online campus, really proud that you've been committed to us and faithful. Let me just say this. If you need to stay in the online campus, you don't live here in this area or uh, you're just not, it's not good for your health to come back, make sure that you do join a small group because without small groups, well, you don't have the relationships that you need in order to mature to become like Jesus. So I'm giving you a challenge if you're in the online community, make sure you, we have small groups that are both online and in person, and you find one that will help you out. Glad you guys are with us. I'm going to look at John 19 if you want to turn there in just a moment, John chapter 19. So in small claims courts, if you win a judgment against a defendant, typically people will celebrate because they got the $1,300 they thought they were due. Oddly, in a capital case, if a defendant is declared guilty, people will celebrate then as well. But you actually get nothing out of that. Think about it. What is it that a family member, for example, gets uh, when the person who murdered their family member is sentenced to life in prison? It's not like you get money out of it. Uh, you don't get the deceased murdered victim back. And yet the celebration is still strong. In fact, it can be incredibly strong. What is it? that a person gets out of that? And the answer, as you know, is justice. That the soul yearns for justice, to, to put it in the language of the Proverbs, when justice is done, it brings joy to the righteous, but terror to evildoers. I think that there is no other quality of being humid that reflects the image of God quite like the quality of needing justice. And all of us want justice. We live in a world where we understand the importance of justice. In fact, it seems to me that America has been so richly blessed with some of the best justice systems on the planet in all of history that we could actually forget how important justice is. I don't like to divide us into racial classes and categories and so forth, but I'll say this. I think for a lot of suburban white Americans, justice is not something we talk about a whole lot. Because we're often on the winning side of justice. We get so much justice and we come to expect it that it's probably not that big of a deal, at least in our current state of thinking. Those of you who are black, justice is probably a bigger deal for you because you and uh, your race has had to argue for it and fight for it for many centuries. But the truth is, none of us survives in a world that is steeped in injustice. We really require justice. And that answers the question that I think lies at the heart of the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? I mean, after all, couldn't God have just said, I forgive you of your sins? And nobody had to die. You didn't have to have the bloody mess on the cross. You didn't have to have the scourging, the whipping. You didn't have to have Jesus with the crown of thorns and the humiliation, the nakedness in front of the whole world. Why couldn't God have simply said, hey, I just forgive you and dismiss all of it? I think the question is more important than it might sound. It's not just a theological question. For here's the deal. If you misunderstand the cross, you will in one way or another miss the entire Christian message. At the foot of every heresy, at the foot of every apostasy, and the foot of every form of disbelief is a misunderstanding of the nature of the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? 
And that's the question I want to answer in the lesson today. And we'll just read a small part of the crucifixion narrative, and then I'm going to do a summary and we'll just answer some questions that I think are real important to those of you who follow Jesus. John 19, starting at verse 14. It was a day of preparation of the Passover. It was about noon, or the third hour is what the original text actually says. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side, Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. I know that you're aware of this if you paid much attention to the Gospels, but let me just highlight it for a moment. The Gospels tell the story of the life of Jesus. So Jesus lived to be over 30 years old. His adult ministry covered, we think, about three years. I say we think because when you have four different accounts of it, and each of them is different, not contradictory, but just different. They choose different things to say then you find yourself like with a puzzle having to piece together the life of Jesus. Most of the pieces, we're real comfortable that we know where to put them. But there are some that you might could put it here or maybe it goes over there. What we know is that in the Gospels, when we get to the cross, the narrative of all four Gospels slows down incredibly. So much so that the last week of Jesus' life covers a third of the Gospel of Matthew. So he lived to be 30-something years, but the last third of Matthew's gospel is just that one week. The last third of Mark's gospel is the last week of Jesus. The last fourth of Luke's gospel is the life of Jesus. And the last half, the entire second half of John's gospel focuses only on the week of the cross. Why is that? It's because the cross is central to the Christian faith, and it is the center of all of human history. Everything before the cross points up to the cross, and everything since the cross depends upon the work that was accomplished on the cross. I'll walk through the story real quickly with you just one more time. Jesus was staying in Bethany, a town no more than two miles from Jerusalem. There at the house of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, he would spend the nights. During the day, he would come across the Kidron Valley which was right between Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. And he would teach in the synagogues, he would teach at the temple, and he would do some of the final miracles of his life. On the night, Jesus starts his trials. We would say Thursday night, it's a little complicated because the Romans measure time differently than we do, and the Jews measure time differently than we and the Romans did. And sometimes it's not always clear which time frame is being referenced. But the last night, what we would call Thursday night and the Jews would call Friday night, Jesus goes to some upper room, probably in the wealthier part of Jerusalem, and there he did all those things that we come to remember him by. The institution of the Lord's Supper, the washing of the apostles' feet, his admonition for them to wait until the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, descends upon them. It was here that Jesus predicts his death and that Judas gets up and leaves in order to betray Jesus. When they finished their meal, they crossed over from the upper room to the Garden of Gethsemane. Gethsemane simply means olive garden. And it was here that Jesus had gone many times in order to pray to the Father in the um, among the very old olive trees and among that sense of seclusion that came with that particular garden. 
as Jesus was praying there, the gospels say that he was sweating and the sweat was so intense that it was as of they were drops of blood. While there in the garden, Judas brought a, a group of guards who were related to the high priests. These were Jewish guards. And they arrested Jesus and took him first to the house of Annas, who was the father-in-law of the high priest, and then second to the house of Caiaphas. By the way, we know more about Caiaphas than you might think. He was a, a well-known high priest. And several years ago, as our, uh, engineers were clearing out uh, the debris of a, the Jerusalem area in order to pave a road, they stumbled upon his casket. actually has his name on it, the uh, ossuary or bone box of Caiaphas, the high priest. While Jesus was there, he was placed on trial before the high priest. He was beaten. In fact, the gospels say that they doubled up their fists to humiliate and to mock Jesus. And you can imagine that by the time Jesus gets to the trial with Pilate, which will happen in a couple of hours, he already likely has broken bones, may well have had a dislocated jaw. He probably had at least one eye or maybe more already beaten. And there he stands before the high priest who says, we need nothing else except to crucify this man. Now, the high priest of the Jews had certain civil authorities, but he did not have the authority to level a death sentence. And so they sent Jesus over to Pilate. Pilate was a representative of Caesar. Remember, the Romans were occupying Israel at the time. It's most likely that Pilate's residence was in what's called the fortress of Antonia. Pilate is a little disturbed by Jesus. His wife has had a dream, have nothing to do with this guy. Pilate wants to let Jesus go. He's looking for a reason to let Jesus go. But he understands that if he lets Jesus go, he has to face possibly an insurrection on the part of the Jews. He did not want to have to report that back to the Caesar. So he comes up with the idea of sending Jesus over to Herod Antipas, who was the king of the northern part of Israel, but happened to be visiting Jerusalem because of the Passover. Jesus gets there. Herod Antipas is hoping he can get Jesus to do a miracle. He's thinking of Jesus as a source of entertainment, uh, and Jesus doesn't do anything. And so Antipas sent Jesus back to Pilate, and while he was there with Pilate, Pilate finally concedes and treats Jesus in the most brutal of fashions. This sermon is one of the last sermons in this series, Christ Brings Life. And as I was preparing for the lesson, I have to admit, it was just really hard to go back through all these details of the sufferings of Jesus. It's really hard to conceive of a regime that could take so much joy out of torturing a person to death. Much of the torture Jesus endured was most likely done for the fun of the soldiers. We talk about Jesus being whipped, but whipping is not exactly what the Gospels say Jesus endured. He endured instead of scourging. The scourge was, without getting too graphic, the scourge was designed to rip the muscle off your body, but keep you alive so that you could feel the pain. And so Jesus was scourged badly enough that it was likely that he was unrecognizable by the time he was done. Pilate took him back and said, what should we do with him? Pilate really hopes that the Jewish authorities will say, that's enough, let him go. But they didn't. Instead, they had whipped up the crowd, the very same crowd whose sick Jesus had just healed, the very same crowd that Jesus had fed with the loaves and the fishes, the very same crowd 
whose family members that had died, he had raised from the dead. The very same crowd shouts out, crucify him. A Roman crucifixion was not just intended to kill a person. It was intended to humiliate you as you died a slow and painful death. Jesus was sent out on the way of suffering in Latin, the Via Dolorosa, where he finds himself at a hill, we would say, not really a mountain, just outside the city limits. By the way, for centuries, there's been a church built on top of the hill that's called Calvary. And the mountain of Calvary was so close to the tomb where Jesus was built that the same church can house both. And even today, you can go and there inside of the church, you can see the remains of Mount Calvary. You see individuals praying, kneeling as they approach where Jesus bled and died. He hung on the cross maybe six hours. While he was there, you can imagine the pain and the suffering. By the way, people typically die on crosses of asphyxiation. What happens is your feet are nailed to the cross, your arms are suspended, and in order to breathe, you have to push up. So Jesus finds himself having to push up against the nails that are penetrating his feet, and at some point you have no strength left. Your lungs fill with fluid, and you die a painful death, drowning in your own fluids. Jesus is hanging on the cross, nude, so that he can be doubly humiliated. People are mocking him and making fun of it. It was a lynching, a public lynching. And when he finally died, after he had been pierced in the side with a sword, he was brought down, was not even given his own tomb, but was instead laid in a borrowed tomb, uh, which was enough because he wasn't going to be there any more than three days. You know, if you walk through that story as I just did, and if we had gotten more graphic than we did, it surely would have raised the question again, God, wasn't there an easier way? Why did Jesus have to die a slow, torturous death? So, if Jesus died that kind of death, it surely had some big significance. And I want to answer the question for you for the next few minutes by describing the justice of God. The death of Jesus was necessary for your salvation. And here's why. Justice requires that when scales are tipped, they be set right again. Justice requires that when a debt is incurred, it be paid off. Justice requires that when someone over here does something morally or ethically wrong, someone over here inevitably pays for it. By the way, I'm not suggesting we have to do this because it's the right thing. That's not my argument. My argument is not that you owe it to pay someone back. My argument is you will pay somebody back even if you don't want to. Every act of injustice must be borne by somebody. Somebody carries every act of injustice. Every lie you ever told somehow had to be absorbed in someone else's life. They had to pay a debt for that lie. Every time you failed to do that which you know you should have done, somebody had to pay for that act of injustice. Every time you cheated on something or cheated on somebody, every time you did it, somebody had to pay for that act of injustice. You see, God has so constructed the universe that justice is woven into the fabric of the universe, so much so that if you flick a moral uh, particle here on this side of the universe, 14 billion light years away on the other side, another particle will flip. 
I want to quote from Martin Luther King, who, when trying to explain to several white pastors in Atlanta and Birmingham area why he thought the fight for civil rights was worth it, and they were saying, these guys agreed with him. They just said, don't march. If you just wait long enough, justice will eventually be served in the South. And King disagreed. His comment was this, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And here's a phrase that's really worth remembering. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. What he's arguing is this, any place on well, planet Earth, any place in the universe that you trigger an unjust act, somebody somewhere in the same fabric of the universe is going to have to pay. Three quick analogies. Imagine a woolen sweater. I don't know if that's woolen or not, but that's the only picture I could get. Imagine if you grab a piece of yarn here and you pull on it, what happens over here? It snags over here. And the same is true with our injustice. Every act of injustice you commit here snags somewhere that you can't even see yet. But somebody is going to have to pay for that act of injustice. Here's a second example, scales. Imagine if we had a pound of golden nuggets in each of these sides. If you remove only one nugget, even if it's a small nugget, the scales are now tipped in your favor. Somebody has to pay for this debt. Or the illustration you've heard me use quite a few times. Every time you throw garbage into the water from which we must all drink, somebody else has to pay for it. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. You need to remember that. There is no such thing as a victimless sin. Every sin, every crime, every lie, every act of greed, every act of selfishness produces a victim. Every single one of them does. In fact, it produces victims sometimes for generations. Here's a true story. I got involved in the story late in, later in the, its development. A young man, 17-ish, convinces a young woman, 17-ish, that if she loves him, she'll have relations with him. It's an act of injustice on two levels. First of all, he's lying, which is an act of injustice. And second, he's using that which does not belong to him. Her body does not belong to him. Until you're in a committed married relationship, no one else's sexuality belongs to you. She accepts his argument and becomes pregnant. Now follow this. All he did was offer one single sentence. If you love me, you'll do this. She becomes pregnant. Because she's a Christian, she's not going to commit abortion, but she's not very mature either. She has the baby. Who ends up raising the baby? Her parents do because he's long gone now. The parents raise a baby, and though they love the baby, we'll say a baby girl, though they love the little girl, they're really at a point where he, he's just not interested. The father's not, and the mother works. They can't do what they know they ought to be able to do. So this young girl grows up in what feels like a broken home to her. By the time she's 13 or 14 years old, the one thing she wants more than anything else is some male, because remember, she hasn't had a father, some male who will just love her. And so she ends up living a promiscuous life, and she becomes pregnant now at age 15 or 16. And now suddenly there's a baby to be born that nobody cares about. And I want to tell you something. By the time you reach the third generation, there is so much dysfunction in the lives of these babies, the lives of these children. There is so much pain and so much hurt. There is poverty. There are, there are addictions. There are mental health issues. And you know where it started? 
It started all the way back here when this young man told a lie and acted unjustly. His unjust action has left a legacy now of debt where people are constantly having to pay up his debts. That's why justice is so important. It's why we instinctively understand somebody has to pay for every crime I commit. And that answers the question, why did Jesus have to die? Because some of us think to ourselves, well, I'm a pretty good guy. I don't know that I have that many debts left unpaid. But if you're honest with yourself, you know that your lies, your misbehaviors, your missed opportunities to do what's right, your selfishness, your greed, whatever it is, they have affected thousands of people, people whose names you don't even know. Let me read to you how Paul describes the sinfulness of humanity apart from Jesus. By the way, this is every person. He's, Paul, he's talking about every person without Jesus. This is who we are. He just lists the sins of humans. There is no one righteous, he says, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin, and misery. Mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is describing the state of humanity without Jesus. Now, I just want to say, it's an odd thing to find yourself trying to convince people that they're sinners when you live in a culture that basically says everything is okay. Let me ask you a question. When you open up your newspapers or turn on the news reports, does everything look okay to you? Everybody feel good about the direction of the country? Everybody feel like we're in the right place now? Everybody feel good about what's going on in the world today? Let me tell you something. The reason the world is falling apart is because we're bad people. We're selfish. We're sinners. And what we have not done is counted the cost of the injustices we commit. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is God said, I want a relationship with you and I want it so badly that I will pay your debt. I personally will pay it. You see, God couldn't just say, I forgive you without someone absorbing the debt you owe. Can I use this illustration? This will sound partisan. I don't mean it in a partisan way. But recently by executive order, the president has forgiven a number of student loans. I think Americans could perhaps miss what's going on there. So here's what you need to know. The loans really aren't forgiven, are they? It's not as though the money's not going to be spent. All that happened was those who owed the money transferred the debt to somebody else. Now somebody else is paying the debt, but the debt has to be paid. If you take out a mortgage and you default on the mortgage, does that mean that the Debt will never be paid. That's not what it means. All it means is somebody else will have to pay the debt because every debt still has to be paid. Every debt gets paid one way or the other. So when God looks at sinful humanity that's been in rebellion against him, what God realizes is there's a debt that they cannot pay. See, you can't pay all your debts. How can you go back to your childhood? How can you go back to the people you might have mistreated or lied to? How can you even find them? Some of them are not even here. I, I didn't always treat my mother well. What do I do? My mother's been deceased now for 20 years. There, I can't go back to her and make it right. She's not here anymore. I remember doing something 
When I start confessing, it gets risky. When I was a teenager, I worked for a grocery store in Smyrna. And I remember stealing, I'm confessing this, I stole a notebook because I didn't have any notebook paper, I didn't have any money. I just stole it one night as I was working in the store. Nobody, the store was closed and I stole it. I don't know what it cost, 50 cents, whatever it costs. And that haunted me, man, that haunted me so much. I still haven't forgotten it, obviously. And um, probably 20 years later, I went back to the owner of the store and I said, I stole a notebook here when I was in high school and I want to pay you back for it. I don't remember what I offered to pay, but it was a whole lot more than I thought it was worth. And the owner kind of laughed. I would tell you who it is. You all know the family. And said, well, you know, that was a long time ago. And I said, I need you to take this money and I need you to forgive me. Because I can't be right with God, I can't be right with the universe, and I cannot be right with myself until I make this right with you. But you can't do that with everything. You've been through an ugly divorce, how do you go back and make it all right? I'm not suggesting it was all your fault, but how do you make it right? There are some things we just can't undo. And God in his mercy says, all right, here's how I'm going to resolve that. I'm going to take your punishment myself. And that will absolve you of your guilt. And it will open a way for you to have fellowship with me. And that's the crucifixion. As Isaiah says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. When Jesus came up to John the Baptist's ministry, John sees Jesus and says, look, it's the Lamb of God. That's a sacrificial lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus died as a martyr, but his death is much bigger than martyrdom. A lot of people have died as martyrs. Jesus' death is more than a martyrdom. Jesus' death is an atoning sacrifice. It's a ransom. It's a payoff that sets you free. It's the cancellation of your debts. And by the way, one reason why certainly Christians on the left in the U.S. sometimes hesitate over this is first of all, because they understand that if Jesus is the atoning sacrifice, Jesus is the only way. I just remind you, Muhammad didn't die for you. Buddha didn't die for you. Jesus died for you. If Jesus died for you, he is the one and only way, which is exactly what he says. I am the way. He says, I am the truth and I am the life and nobody gets to the Father except through me. The second thing that many on the left don't like about this is that it says we're all sinners. And the The golden project of the last hundred years or so in North America is to get to this perfect utopia. If we just try a little harder, we'll all be perfectible. And that's just not true. That at the end of the day, we require the sacrifice of Jesus because all of us have blood on our hands. And that's why Jesus can be described as the one who takes away the sin of the world. He says of himself, I didn't come to serve, uh, be served, but to serve and to give my life, he says, as a ransom for many. Paul's whole argument in the letter to the Romans is just this, that we cannot by our own merits ever be right with God. Nobody will be so good that God would say, well, we don't have any choice on this one. He has to go to heaven. Nobody's that good. That's why Jesus is required. None of us can pay off the debt of all the sins we've committed. And so Paul says, God presented Christ as the sacrifice of atonement to demonstrate God's rightness. That is, Jesus proves that God is a just God. 
to those in the past whose sins weren't forgiven, and to those in the present. So in God's sacrifice of Jesus, God preserves his justice while exercising to us his mercy. Now, when we understand this, the awesome thing is that it sets us free. It sets us free to know that God paid the price for all the nonsense I'm guilty of. It sets you free. It's a mistake, if I can characterize, maybe draw even a cartoon figure. There are some sects of the Christian faith that just dwell on the sinfulness of humanity and miss the amazing grace offered to us. Some traditional or legalist churches where, as somebody once told me, Every week you find out a new reason you're going to hell. You just got it wrong. If, if that's your form of Christianity, it's just a, it's such an impoverished form because it has no place for the reason God sent Jesus. God sent Jesus not to condemn the world. He sent Jesus to love the world. But then there's the opposite problem, which is we're all basically so good we don't really need Jesus. He just died because he ran afoul with the Romans or he ran afoul with the Jewish establishment or whatever. That's not true either. The truth is I'm a sinner and I can confess it because I'm saved by the grace of God. And that sets me free. Let me show you some of the ways the Bible describes the freedom that we obtain through the death of Jesus. First of all, Jesus' cross paid my debt. Some years back, several years back, Julie and I, following the, sort of the Dave Ramsey plan, became debt-free, paid off the house, Everything paid, everything's paid off, no debt. And I can tell you my whole life got, my step got lighter. Everything just got so much happier when I realized I don't owe anybody anything now. I have no debts. In a lot of ways, that's the gift God gives us in Jesus. That's one reason why Christians can confess our sins to one another. Because they're forgiven. It's, it doesn't hang over your head anymore. The debt has been canceled. Paul puts it this way in Colossians 2. He says, while you were dead in your sins, the uncircumcision of your flesh, that is, your, your righteousness was covered over. God made you alive. He forgave us our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Paul's making the argument that when Jesus was crucified, the I-O-U that every one of us has hanging over our head was nailed to the cross. He took your debt and he paid it for you. By the way, that's better news than saying I don't have any debt because that's not true. You do. It's also better news than to say, you know, I'll just take my chances on my own good works because your good works will never earn you a spot in God's presence. That's one reason why the Christian message has been so compelling through the centuries. It's honest about our sinfulness and it's hopeful in its description of the debt Jesus voluntarily pays and so everyone who believes in him is set free from every sin. And this is a form of justification you couldn't have gotten any other way. In the cross, we are joined to God because our guilt is removed. Here's just a simple way to put it. God is a holy God who cannot mix with unholiness. But each of us is unholy. In the cross, because we have our debts canceled, our sins forgiven, our guilty sentence lifted, we now have free and unfettered access to the Father. He will receive us now because we've been made holy 
as he is holy. Or put this way, Colossians 1, he's reconciled us through Christ's physical body so as to present us as holy in his sight. Let me say this as well. The cross gives suffering its meaning. Jesus' suffering was not pointless. It wasn't accidental. It was not unplanned. Jesus' suffering was a very specific part of the plan of God to redeem all of humanity. Now when we suffer as Jesus suffered, our suffering takes on a meaning. And I just want to say this. Many of you have suffered for years with all sorts of issues. Loss of loved ones, diseases, mental health issues, you name it. And I know I can tell you this now. When you're suffering, once you get your mind around the fact that I may not get a choice in this, the next question you ask is, is there any meaning to this? And you so desperately want your suffering to have meaning. You want it to have a purpose. You don't want to just go through suffering and there's no purpose at all to it. So we we finished our second immunotherapy treatment this week and we go in and as you're sitting there in the um, oncology waiting area at Vanderbilt, I just look around and I think to myself, wow, a hundred years ago, this would have been a polio waiting area. And somebody spent enough time that at some point we conquered polio. I thought of that. We were offered, um, early on, we were offered clinical trials for my diagnosis. And it turns out that I'm, I'm not bad enough to need them just yet. So thank God for that. But when our oncologist mentioned the clinical trials, Julie and I had a conversation about it. And our assessment was all every, everything else being equal, we're, we're, we will definitely do clinical trials, even if they don't work, because I have children. And I may one day have grandchildren. And I have young people, and if my suffering can somehow help cure this terrible disease, I'm all in for it. I'll take it. I want meaning to my suffering. And the cross of Jesus gives us a meaning to it. It's the path that we pass on our way to glory. And so in the cross of Jesus, we find meaning even in the pains of our body. He himself bore sins so we might die to sins and live by righteousness, for by his wounds we've been healed. And here's this one. The cross gives me justification in forgiving other people, not just saying it's okay, but honestly forgiving them. And here's why. I know that God has paid their debt too. So if you go back in your life, those of you who are older, I don't intend always to preach to those who are older, but if you go back in your life, there are things you wish you could undo, maybe things you wish could be corrected, maybe things that were done to you that were wrong. And what the scriptures teach us is that God is going to take care of it all. You don't have to. You don't have to seek vengeance. God will repay. That We have a judge, and we have a judge who's going to set everything right. And for that reason, even when I'm bothered or stressed, when I feel insulted or hurt, I can just say, God's going to take care of it. I don't have to worry about it. I really can forgive. And by the way, it's worth remembering that other people are saying that about you. It's just worth remembering. There are other people who are saying, you know, I hope God makes things right with that person. Someone's saying it about us. And what we need to recognize is in the cross, we're invited to lay all of our debts down, to have all of our indebtedness nailed. And so... The cross gives us victory over death. If we died with Christ, we believe that we'll also live with him. It was necessary for Jesus to go through death in order to defeat death. 
And three days later, when he came out of that tomb, he had now tasted death as each of us will, but he had become victorious over death. And so the cross is God's way of giving the world the justice that we have messed up, of giving us redemption, giving us an opportunity to join back with him, of paying off all of our indebtedness. The cross then is truly the central event in all of human history. It's the way God preserves his justice. Somebody has already paid your debt and expresses his grace. He did it for us freely. And that makes the cross of Jesus the most important event in your life. And so I just invite you to stand up and we'll sing about it. And as we sing about it, think through the beautiful gift God has given us in the cross of Jesus.